Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Love Lassen Game, and I am your host. Today, I will be interviewing Jonathan Wells. Jonathan was raised in the hill country of Texas and has now planted his feet in the heart of Texas, Austin. He's a self-proclaimed cowboy, but has ventured out in travels to become well-diversified in the workplace Jonathan grew up as an Air Force brat. By the age of six, he had lived in three different states and abroad. He was introduced to alcohol, German beer, at a young age, raised by his mother, having a mostly absent father. Jonathan often felt isolated and lonely. His alcoholism reared its head around 16 years old, and he started experimenting with pot and other drugs. At 18, he came out as gay to his Southern Baptist family after graduating high school. After many years of struggling with drugs and alcohol, major anxiety, and even at one point becoming a carny, Jonathan found his way to recovery through treatment and a sober community. It was not without much difficulty that Jonathan figured out how to stay sober and create community in recovery while also being completely true to himself. We are so excited that Jonathan found the time to come on our podcast. He has lots of speaking engagements, does a lot for his community, and we are just thrilled that he was able to make time for the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. Jonathan also has an art business, and 50% of the proceeds go to a company called Clean, and 50% of their profits go to scholarships for people in recovery. The Instagram for Jonathan's art can be found at Recovery Art Shop on Instagram. That is at Recovery Art Shop. And again, 50% of the profits go to scholarships for people in recovery. So without further ado, my friends, please enjoy Episode 25, and let's do this. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I I have all this amazing uh, background on you about your life, but I want to hear everything from from your perspective on your recovery. How long are you sober? So I've been sober uh, since March 21st of 2013, so currently six years. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Feeling good. And uh, they say, I think the, you know, uh, royal they say that after five years, you're no longer a newcomer. So welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What was your, what would, do you think that you were born an alcoholic or that you became one? Oh, I was totally born one. Uh, yeah. it, I, there's, you know, they've always talked about in the news about, you know, you have, uh, they found a gene, uh, the alcoholic gene, right? And I completely believe that because it runs in my family. It runs on both sides of my family. It runs mostly on my dad's, uh, biological dad's side of my family. And most of them have either died from drug overdoses, alcoholism, or currently still drink. And then on my mom's side, they, they just don't drink. It's kind of weird. But <laughs> right. there's something... Yeah, there's something wrong with them. They don't drink. It's <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> very, very questionable. <laughs> very questionable. But, you know, they, my mom's side of the family, they're in the, they, they grew up in the country, uh, sort of the old folk. And so 
you know, they're, they're kind of the cowboy, uh, cowboy side of Texas, I guess. Okay. And so you're, where in Texas are you? So I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh, it is uh, the wonderful, beautiful capital. The live music capital of the world is like, uh, is what we call it. So, uh, there's lots of, uh, bars that you can go listen to music that you oh, can yeah. go drink that you, uh, we have, Drinking in bars is very expensive. Uh, it, it's very expensive. Let me tell you, we can get to that. Yeah. And, you know, we have Austin City Limits, South by Southwest. We have a new Speedway. Austin oh is growing. Uh, this just became a tourist commercial for Austin, Texas. I, I love I, it. I know. So, I mean, it's it's growing by leaps and bounds. Yes, you should come. It's great. <laughs> I It's it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, what's the uh, the area where the like watering hole where everybody goes? In Austin, that would be Barton Springs Pool. Yes. Yeah, and that, yeah that's the one. That, it stays like at 50, 60 degrees uh, all year round. They have like a, a moon thing to where it's when a full moon. You go out and you howl for some reason, and oh. then you jump in the pool at like midnight. It's the strangest thing I've ever seen, but it's also... That sounds amazing. It is amazing. It <laughs> sounds amazing. And they do it in the they do it in the winter too. I mean, you're talking about like it's 20, 30 degrees outside. Let's go howl at the moon and then jump into this freezing degree water. It sounds like a great time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just too bad that you know we're not drinking for that because that would definitely make it also life threatening and yeah. you know and a good time, right? Absolutely. I feel like that's the kind of thing where if I was drinking, I would somehow take that too far. Like oh, as if that's a thing, I would manage to take howling at the moon in the winter too far. <laughs> well, you know, you could you could buy uh, a wolf suit. Uh, you could wear that if you yes. were drinking and on other substances. You could yes. drink because you have to stay warm yes. uh, when you jump in the pool. I mean, there are so many Necessity. different ways. There's no us. other way to stay warm other than no. to drink alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know of any other way. <laughs> no other way at all. There's no, no, there's no towels. No. You know, there's no, no heat warmers. No, there's nothing like that. Not. Nothing's absolutely been invented not. like that. Insulation. Yeah. Nope. Nope. There's nope. just alcohol. I didn't know about this. <laughs> so we belong. That's that's the that's the good news. Yes, we belong. So did you grow up in Austin? No. So I was born in Colorado and I stayed there uh, for about four or five years. Uh, my dad was in the Air Force. So I'm an Air Force brat, which means I moved around a lot. Yeah. And after five years, uh, we moved to San Antonio and that was where my sister uh, Kristen was born. And we stayed there for about a year. And then uh, my dad got orders to ship us over to Germany. So we flew over to Germany. And we stayed there for six or seven years. And so I grew up around a different culture than I was used to. We were on the base for a couple of years and then we moved off base. Oh, so cool. yeah, it was very cool. I had, uh, we stayed in a building that was sort of like an apartment complex, except each floor had a family. And so it was like this building apartment complex thing. I, I can't really explain it. The landlord was on the bottom and there was about four families in the, in, so it was about four stories and each, each story had to build a, a family. And so I had to catch a bus. I had to walk um, uphill in the snow, you know, both ways. Both ways. It's Germany, it snows. <laughs> and catch a bus uh, to the base. And that's where I went to school at. So do you speak German? It's Schweizerisch. No, uh, nine. Uh, Paquito. There you go. <laughs> oh, my God. You're the best ever. Oh, Paquito. Más o menos. Yes. So... <laughs> uh, no, I, I used to. I, it's funny. Someone... 
I don't speak it fluently, but if someone uh, spoke to me, I you could, could I could understand it yeah. and and somehow create some type of phrase that may not be correct, but they could understand <laughs> me what I was saying back to them. So we Donde esta la cerveza? Yes, exactly. The important things. And, you know, being in Texas so long, I know more Spanish now than I, right. I do German. But every, everybody in, in Germany understood that. You know, when you go to a foreign country, they understand that you're an American and that you don't you, you don't know their language. And, and they they kind of know your language. Because when you go to, to a German school, you learn four or five languages. Yeah. It's, it's pretty insane. So they, one of my good friends, Christoph, I grew up with him in Germany and, you know, he, he went to the German school and we still keep in touch and he learned five, he graduated learning five languages and it's pretty amazing. We're kind of a little narcissistic here that we, that we only learn one language because yes. we, we were like the rest of the world will adapt. Yeah. You know, yeah. We don't need to learn your languages. We're, we're just not. English and you guys figure that out. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so Germany was a, definitely an experience. And uh, after Germany, we moved back uh, here to Texas. And it was uh, it was a very lonely time uh, being being in the an Air Force child and moving around a lot. You don't get to necessarily make the friends if you were to stay in, in one state you know, and grow up with those people and make those long term connections that you're going to have for the rest of your life. So I was very lonely. um, And that was that was very hard uh, for me. Uh, My dad was really never there when I needed him. My mom mostly raised me uh, as a child. And so for most of my childhood, and and I think through my um, addiction, I was always trying to fill a void. Yeah. Yeah. How old were you when you left Germany? I was, God, I had to think about this. Uh, so 12, 11, 10. I was about eight or nine when I left. Okay. Um, and you, did you start drinking young? When was the first time alcohol became a, a, of interest to you? So when I was in Germany uh, and my dad's buddies were over, uh, every so often my dad would give me a drink. And it wasn't an entire drink, but it was like a little small glass uh, just to try out beer. Because I, I wanted to be a part of his group. I wanted mm-hmm. to have that attention from my dad that I wasn't kidding. And the only way I knew how was to say, hey, let me, let me, let me have some of your wonderful, you know, high percentage alcohol beer. And <laughs> so he, you know, he, he gave me taste and I was like, oh, that, that wasn't, that wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, that was my first taste though, of right. alcohol. Uh, my addiction didn't really start until, uh, well after, well, probably in high school, I would say. Yeah. So, so you, you know, this was obviously an escape. Eventually this became some sort of way to fill that void that you, that loneliness void, it sounds like. Absolutely. It was a way for me to meet new people. Uh, when you walk into a bar and, and the bartender knows exactly what you drink Mm -hmm. and, you know, he sees you coming through the window and he has your drink on the, on the, on the bar as soon as you come in and you don't have to put down a credit card because he knows you're going to pay at the end of the night. It's like, Oh, I feel welcome. Right. I feel a part of, I feel a part of this bar. And, you know, then other people show up and you're like, Hey, what's up? I haven't seen you since six hours ago. Right, what, totally. what, what's going on with you? Yeah. What, how's your, been in your life? <laughs> yeah. So it was definitely a, a, a way to, to, to fill that void, to create those friends that I didn't have. 
And as a kid growing up, I was very sheltered as a child. My International travel, but sheltered. But sheltered, yes. Um, in fact, I remember one time I was so lonely and all my friends out from the building were outside playing. My mom was asleep. And so I decided to escape because we were on the first floor. So the, the top window escaped basically to the street. And I got to basically sneak out of the house and go play with my friends. And when my mom woke up, she panicked, found me, brought me back into the house. My, mom, my dad immediately came home and punished me. And I, so I was very sheltered. They didn't, they didn't let me out a lot. Even when we moved back to the States, I, I couldn't ride my bike out of the yard. Uh, I couldn't ride it down to the street because my mom, no offense, mom, but she'd like to watch the A&E channel uh, where, you know, she would see that people would get kidnapped and that was her world. And she was very scared because I was her firstborn son and she didn't want anything happening to me. So I get it from her perspective, but I wasn't able to do a lot of things. So it, it was very hard growing up and, and not being able to experience the world like other kids did. If they just grew up in the States and they were able to go down the street and play until the, the lights came on, the street lights came on and they went home for dinner. So I didn't, I didn't have that experience. What was high school like for you? And when did you come out to your family? So this is going to be a long-winded answer, so I'm sorry. Okay, but, okay. No, uh, no, no. So my parents divorced when I was in 12th grade, so 6th grade. And 6th grade was very hard, um, and I went to Hayes High School. When my parents divorced, my mom met my stepdad, who I call call my dad today. So I'll, I'll, I'll say my biological dad and then my dad uh, when, I, when I have certain conversations. But after they got married, we moved to Bastrop, Texas, and that's where I went to middle school. And middle school was fairly normal for me. Um, I, my stepdad really wanted to get to know me and really wanted to have the life that he never had with kids because uh, he didn't have any kids of his own. So we always went boating. We always had fun. We went camping. Middle school was great growing up. After middle school, my parents decided to move us back into Austin, Texas, so I could go to Hayes High School. And I fought it for a long time because I was bullied at, in sixth grade in the same school district. Why would I want to go back to the same school? Right. But they thought it was a better high school, and so we went. And I was very weary about going back. My first day of class, I think my first class with health was health. And after health, um, this kid came up to me, and he was like, Jonathan, Jonathan Wells, is that you? And I'm like, yes, it is. And I was like, someone memorized, someone like remembered me. This is great. I have friends. Oh my gosh. And I can't, I I think his name was Jason. And I kind of got into that group. But as I grew in high school, I, because I really didn't, because I moved around um, and I didn't have those friends, I had to discover who I was and where I fit in that in this new high school that I was going to be at for four years. So I made friends with all different types of groups and who exposed me to a lot of different things. And I'm talking about, I hung out with the band geeks. I hung out with the science nerds. I hung out with the, with the jocks and the sports teams. And I did uh, what we call, I guess the future farmers of America, the FFA. Um, I even, you know, wore my jeans and cowboy boots and shirts and belt buckles. And if you can imagine that, but yeah, and we welded and dipped in, in school. So it was hard for me to try to find a group. So I just yeah. joined them all. Right. <laughs> I mean, I get why, that. Why try not? them all. Try them all out. Yeah. And so by the end of high school, I pretty much knew everybody and they knew who I was because I, I did a lot of things. I, I had to 
instinctively kick in my survival mechanisms, uh, as I think you mentioned in your story. And um, something that resonated with with your story was you kind of joined everything, right? I did student council. I was in track. I did soccer. I was cross country. Anything that I could get my hands on to to stay busy, I did. And I was even on a soccer team outside of high school. I was a trainer that wraps the football guy's feet because I wanted to get to know them. And I did everything that I could. In regards to that, because I was, because I joined a whole bunch of groups, I got exposed to a lot of different substances and drinking. And that's kind of when I guess my addiction started. That's when I started drinking before school. There was a gas station. I won't mention which one because I don't want to get them in trouble, but I, uh, <laughs> there was a gas station that we knew a guy and he would sell us beer in the mornings, right? And we would drink it before we went to school. There were some friends on my soccer team that I got in and we would smoke pot before going to school. Sometimes we would skip class and then get our, our substance use fix and then go to school. And that went on for, for three or four years um, because I just wanted to be, lo- to, to be, I guess, belong to somebody and be accepted. So it wasn't pure pressure. It was, hey, if you're going to do this, I'm going to do this because, hey, I'm hanging out with you and I want to be your friend. Did the drugs and the alcohol do anything for you that allowed, like, did they, you know, of course they were, they were the, you know, the ticket to entry, you know, to being part of this group, but did the substance, the actual chemical composition do anything for you too, or was it only to be fit in? No, I, it, it was definitely, um, uh, as an escape, my stepdad and my mom's relationship at that time wasn't the best. They wanted another child. So they were trying to, uh, to have, have another child on top of, you know, them arguing um, a lot. It wasn't the best time in our, in our family. And so I needed an escape. Um, and that, that was my escape was to go, you know, smoke a, smoke a joint, uh, uh, in my right. car or, right. um, so it did something for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So then it, uh, you came out at 18 so that was that. Were you still in high school when this happened? No, this was after I graduated high school. I was hanging out with some people that I met uh, that I was on the board of directors for, and I, you know, they were, you know, I was talking to them about because I had knew I was I was gay for a long time, and I I just kept it in the closet. My parents, I think, knew it, but they denied it. And I had a very long conversation with those friends about, I, I need to tell them, but I'm scared to because of the repercussions that may, may happen. And I made the decision to, to do that um, before I moved out of the house. I sat my mom down at the dinner table. I, I can still remember the ugly wallpaper that we stared at while I told her. And after I, when I, even before I could say that I was gay, my mom was crying and denying it. And um, oh, wow. my parents were very um, religious Christians. Uh, that was my upbringing. And they denied it for a long time. Uh, so let's stop right there for a second. Two things. When did you have this inkling? Like when did when did it start going? Or I knew I, you said I knew I was gay for a long time. And the other piece was, so you're, when you say denied, you mean she told you that what you were saying was not true? 
Correct. She says, you know, it was a phase. Um, ah, okay. This isn't right. We can get you help. Okay. Um, all, all of those things uh, that that uh, I think most religious Christian families would, moms would say. So, and I knew that, you know, I, I had this feeling since I was probably um, five or six uh, okay. that I that I knew that I liked uh, guys. And it definitely propelled itself heavily when I was in high school. Um, I right. dated I dated women all through high school, uh, just as a kind of a cover. Most most of the people in in high school sort of knew. I did have some blowback after high school. Um, after some people that were gay in high school were made fun of by the, some of the groups that I were were in, and when they saw me out, um, they gave me a really hard time because I didn't defend them. But and I and I felt really bad, and we made up. But it was very hard to to mask that all through high school. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And I mean, that's a complicated. It's a complicated. <laughs> all of that is very complicated. You also grew up in Texas, and. You know, it's a very, you know, I, I, I grew up mostly, um, on the coast and, and mostly in the San Francisco Bay area. So being gay was a non-issue. And so it's, it's interesting to me, you know, to, to he, there's all sorts of different reactions. So the idea that someone would say, oh my gosh, we can get you help. To me, that was not something we, there, there were also other weird stuff, but that, that in and of itself was not, you know, people didn't really bad an eye at that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it just, it depends on where you are. Yeah. And, you know, Texas is a very uh, conservative state, even Austin. Austin's very liberal. We're kind of like, we don't really belong in Texas. Austin yeah. is like its own little state <laughs> totally, um, totally. inside of Texas. It's like, you, if you, if you're, sometimes you just don't want to like travel outside of Travis County because mm-hmm. you just don't know what's going to be waiting for you. Even though I was raised in the country. And a lot of my family denied it. Uh, my mom didn't want me to tell any of my family. Yeah. Um, and we, I didn't for the longest time. And even even uh, my my brother, uh, who is eighteen now, they didn't let me tell him until uh, I got married four years ago. So the first time he found out that you were gay was when you were getting married. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't allowed to my wedding. That's a whole other conversation we can have later. Right, <laughs> right. Yes, of course. Okay, so so you come out, and was there any relief in no. doing that? No, okay. No, no, there wasn't. Um, you know, I cleaned my set of the street on that part. I moved out of the house uh, and into an apartment with a friend that, you know, convinced me that it was time to tell my parents uh, of how I truly felt. So at that point, I moved out. Uh, I was living uh, with, oh God, I can't remember her name, uh, but she was a very nice uh, person. And that's kind of when my addiction started to take hold. And I started going out a lot. I started doing more than my drug of choice, which was uh, alcoholism. There was a lot of other stuff that came into play, uh, like right. cocaine, uh, speed, um, and, and so forth. And so... It, it got out of control so much and that I was in a, a such a bad state that I was I was missing family functions. There was a year that my family uh, took a family photo that I'm not in because I had been up all night before and I just didn't go. So whenever I set, passed by that picture in my house, I'm like, that wasn't a good year. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that year. Yeah, not, that so, year. not so good. Not so good. I remember that year. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, it, it got to a point where I was such in a bad state and such in a bad state of mind that I got evicted from my apartment. And did your, I just had a curiosity. So your, your family did offer you help as, you know, because you told them that you were gay. Did they offer you help for your, your drug addiction or what was cl- what was clearly a problem? I don't think they understood what the problem was. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that they thought that it was just me being gay. And that was the, that was the gay tendency that you're just not going to make oh. anything of yourself and you can't be productive in life. And I don't, I don't think that it, it was the, 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 the drinking and, and the drugging, to be honest. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, because they didn't really offer me help until much, much later down the road. Right, right. Okay. And so you get kicked out of this house or you're in, and then you end up in Nashville, right? Is that right? Well, I got kicked out of the house um, or I was evicted. And then I moved in with my biological dad and stepmom. And uh, um, which obviously was a, a a situation that was wrought with all sorts of stuff because you called him your biological dad. Yes, it, implying that he was not the figure that was raising you. No, no, my uh, my dad and mom raised me. I call him my biological dad because I don't consider him my dad anymore. And right. uh, we can when I went to rehab. Uh, Mm -hmm. After I told him, after I went to rehab and then after the law thing that we'll talk about later, they didn't want me to come to any family functions anymore. And we haven't talked in uh, about seven or eight years, which I'm fine with because he's the the major alcoholic in the family. Right. Yeah. So I'm quite okay with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not the best family functions to be a part of. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but you did move in with him and his wife. I did. Yes. I moved in with them for a time until I met Sean, which was probably my first boyfriend that I moved in with. And that went well for a while uh, until... Doesn't know it always. Yeah. It, probably for the first couple of months, it was fine. And I was like, you know, he was a lot older than me. He was, God, I was 19 and he was 32. So much, much older than I was and took me under his arms and taught me the world, basically, which to him was the bars, parties, and more cocaine. And so we did that for the longest time until I got sick of it got a, a really good job and started cleaning myself up a bit. And he just kind of went down that rabbit hole. So I moved out and into some friends of mine that were lesbians. And they were very nice, took me in, but I was still drinking uh, on the weekends and partying and not coming home. Well, one day when I was, after I turned 21 and I was out at the bars and so was Sean and he told me not to go to this one party. I did anyway. And um, I think it was about three in the morning. I couldn't sleep. One of the party goers said he was a dentist, gave me a pill and said, here, this is going to help you sleep. And I was not in my right mind at the moment. So I took it and went to bed. And the next thing I know, when I woke up, I remember uh, being raped and um, vivid images that would come back. And I called a friend of mine that I worked with and literally slept on her floor for two nights, balled up in a ball because I really didn't know what happened. And I had to make sense of this in my mind. So that was really hard. And finally, when I went to the doctor and I called my my mom and dad, 
they moved me out um, of the uh, of the house that I was living in and then with them. And at that point, they started dragging me to the Southern Baptist Church. I, quote unquote, found religion and went back into the closet. Wow. So the attacker was this dent, this dentist human? Yeah, he, I believe he was like a dentist or um, an eye doctor, one of the two. I don't remember his name. I don't remember what he looked like. All I remember is he saying that he was a doctor. The, per, the people that were around me said that he was a doctor. And so I trusted that. Right, right. And, uh, and, and so you, uh, I'm sorry that happened. That's terrible. And, uh, and something that unfortunately is so common when we're using is, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where, and I think a lot of people can relate to this. Those of us, I don't know many people who are in recovery who haven't had that experience because, I think so we become easy targets and for the exact reason that you're talking about, it's like, well, we were already in this partying situation. We were already. And so what, by the time we come out of it, realize what has happened, we don't feel that we have the right to say anything, right? We don't like, you're like, well, what am I going to say? Like I took the pill, right? <laughs> or you know, like, what do you say? And so it becomes this shame spiral of a sh- shame about being in the situation shame about taking the medicate the pill the whatever you know insert whatever it is and then shame about what happened and then shame about not being able to say anything because you're ashamed of all of the other things and it's like you know it's just this horrible shame spiral that we pour more alcohol on top of absolutely uh and it's it it, it was shame for the longest time and yeah i i, I it, it took me a very long time to understand exactly how to feel about that and yeah. You know, until I worked my steps, I, I really didn't really didn't understand, and that was twelve years later. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. until I until I really understood the entirety of uh, uh, gravity of the situation, and so it was it was interesting. So you you went back into the closet as as a was it this idea that maybe this would solve the problem, like or like another solution to whatever that void is like maybe i just need to put this part of me away what what was the what was the impetus for you being willing to mm-hmm. go back into the closet yeah uh you know going back to the southern baptist church that my parents would go to i sat down with the preacher um uh, it was before or during the service i can't remember uh, to confess our sins and so my stepdad uh, went with me, and I told him everything that was happening, and and we prayed, and the quote unquote burden was lifted, and um, I I thought that you know that part of me was gone. If I wasn't gay, then you know I wouldn't have gotten raped. If I wouldn't have, if I if I wouldn't have taken that pill, you know, if I wouldn't have um, you know used been using substances or drinking, and you know back backfilling that whole story, so. Going back in the closet, supposed to fix everything, right? That's what the the preacher said. So that's what I did. And what did what hap- What was what was that like? It was very. I'm not saying it was easy to accept, but you know, I, I did stop drinking uh, because I stopped hanging out at, at, at the gay bars. I started going to the Southern Baptist Church every Sunday. I joined the choir, and um, everything was hunky dory. And at that time is when I moved to Nashville with one of my best friends that I went to church with. And, you know, we joined another Southern Baptist church up there. 
I got a, a new job and got into call center work. And um, if, if you don't know anything about call centers, I guarantee you about 40% of us are going to be LGBT. It's just a thing. I don't, I don't understand it, but about 40 to 50% of us are. So going back into to that world, I, I met more people that were LGBT and sat down with them and started telling my story. And so during were lunch, you trying to like convert the say, like you guys should come to this Baptist church. No, no, oh God, no. Oh, good, okay. They they wanted to talk to me because I told them their story and they were like, That's not right. <laughs> Something's wrong. And I'm right. like, Are you sure? Because yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure I have been doing great the past two years. Right, I haven't right. drank. I, yeah. I haven't I have I was being celibate at the time. Right. I That's was it's really Yeah. <laughs> working out. Yeah. An exciting life. Um, <laughs> going to Alabama football games. Um, you so, go. you know, we started talking a lot and, you know, that person introduced me to another person who introduced me to another person. And soon I was sitting down with a group of them and I started, uh, realizing some things and I started reading more books. There was one book in particular that they gave me and I started reading it and it was a about a story of someone that knew they were a, a homosexual and they went back into the closet, what that was like for them. And when they realized that that's really who they were and they had to come back out again and how tough that was. And after I read that book, I cried for hours on end because I knew who I was. Yeah, And I started hanging out again with the LGBT community. And when that happened. Um, that person that I was living with found out, um, and he kicked me out of the house. Uh, I moved in with the, some of the friends from work that, uh, were in this group and helped me kind of get back, back on track of who I was. The fun part was I had to come out to my family again. Mm, Cause once is not enough. Let's no. do it. <laughs> let's do it again. Let, let's have the experience all over again. Hey, listen, did they, did they, did they got a redo? Did they do any better? No, it, it became worse. Um, oh God. my, my believe it. So my, my, I called my sister first and I said, Hey sis, I got some news to tell you. And she was like, Oh, are you coming back out again? And I said, yes. She was like, thank God it's about time. Um, I said, you knew. And she was like, duh. Um, she was like, awesome. I love my sister. She's awesome. She's my best friend. She's like, yeah, you were going to Alabama football games. It was, it was like, trying so hard. Yeah. Called my stepmom. She pretty much said the same thing. Duh. About time it came out. Yeah. Uh, the hard part was calling my mom and dad. Uh, and I told them what was happening. We had many fights over the phone. And uh, one Friday after work, when I was driving or when I was walking back to my car, I got into my car tried to back up, noticed there was a car behind me. And I'm like, that's strange. Had a knock on my window and it was my dad. And they flew from Austin to Nashville and they said, we're taking you. And I oh, said, no. taking me where? And they were like, we're taking you back to our hotel. And I'm like, okay. And so I obliged. They were my parents and we, you know, they were trying to throw a lot of Bible verses at me and they couldn't really remember them. So I told them back to them. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, because <laughs> I knew the Bible painful. better. <laughs> I knew it better than they did, you know? Um, and, you know, finally, I, I, they said, well, we have a meeting in the morning with your preacher. And I'm like, cool. And they were like, and you're going to stay here. And I'm like, no. And I finally convinced <laughs> them that I'm, I went home. 
and that I was going to show up the next day. And I did with a lot of documentation. <laughs> and um, it was a very painful meeting. Uh, it yeah. didn't go anywhere. And with you know, them and the preacher. Yeah, it, it, it didn't at all. I, they weren't going to get convinced me otherwise of yeah. who, who, I, who I was and, and who I knew to be. And so after that, I was like, so you want to take a tour of Nashville or what? And yeah. well, we've got that out of the way. That yeah. was awkward, guys, right? Yeah. Oh, so awkward. Um, they finally went back home and um, we, really, we, we didn't talk for a while. Yeah. Um, it wasn't yeah. a, a great communication for a couple of years. And at that point, I was out. I was going back to the bars again. I was trying to find my tribe of people, right? Right. And I did. And I, I, I dated a couple of people. And um, uh, finally, I found while I was house sitting uh, for a friend of mine that I had met, he was like, yeah, go and house sit. Beautiful house in East Nashville, 1920 bungalow. Have a party if you want while I'm gone. Sure. Okay. So, you know, I, I went to a karaoke bar on, on the east side and which, which in Nashville, by the way, karaoke, when they do karaoke, if you're not a country music star, you're probably not going to be up there doing karaoke. Like it's really, <laughs> okay. They're really good. And if okay. you're not good, they're going to kick you off stage. So, <laughs> good to know. Good to know. I will not be getting on stage. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very scary. But you know, Ty Hurden would show up. We had the Dixie Chicks show up. Just, oh my you know, gosh, they live for there. Karaoke? For karaoke. Yeah. Wow. Uh, because they, it was a safe place that right. no one would judge them. No one would, right. uh, you know, clamor over them. It was it was just friend, between friends. And that's where I met Brian. And uh, we immediately, you know, looked at each other across the room after I came downstairs from uh, the second floor. And I said, hey, I'm having a party tomorrow night. Do you want to go? He was like, oh, I can't. You know, I'm going to my grandparents. I was like, oh, that's cute. And... Um, <laughs> I said, well, here's my number. Call me. Wasn't expecting a call at all when he got back, but he did. And me and Brian were together for about four years. And I wasn't heavily drinking then. It was casual drinking. Funny enough, the house that I uh, house sat in, we bought it uh, because <laughs> I was living there and I didn't want to move out. So we bought the house and we had a great partnership for probably about two and a half years until I met some group of people uh, that were... I don't even know how to say this, a very influential people that had a lot of money and great jobs. And I got myself thrown into that group. That group also liked to, you know, the, the terminology, work hard, play hard. Mm-hmm. They liked to, they liked to play very hard. And um, cocaine was introduced back into the mix. Um, so was drinking every weekend, uh, which turned into drinking every week, um, having after parties at our house all the time. And, Things went downhill pretty fast over over a year to where um, I was sleeping around with other people, um, not paying attention to our relationship. Brian knew that I was sleeping around with people, but I think the straw was when we had an after party one night at our house, he caught me with somebody else in our roommate's room. And that's when he said, John, I can't can't do this anymore. You 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 have to find someone. This is going to end. And um, that it threw me into a loop. For the next month, I searched for a place. Me and a buddy moved in together, and my alcoholism took uh, went out of control so much that I was drinking every day. I would get anxiety at work uh, to, because I didn't have, I wasn't drinking. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I was drink. I was drinking when I wake up. I was drinking at lunch. I was drinking yep. during the evenings and staying up till three or four in the morning and trying to go to work. So I found a solution around that. I convinced my doctor that my anxiety was so bad that I needed to go on FMLA, but I needed her convincing to call my work and have a call so that I could get on FMLA so that I could actually go out and drink and use and abuse and call in two or three times a week and not have any repercussions. And for anybody who doesn't know, FMLA is Family Medical Leave Act. Yes. So disability, basically, you know, another way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, completely abused the system. And now, mind you, I thought that was a very clever way to get around keeping my job and using it at the same time. Right. At right. the time, I thought that was a very clever way. I, I, I regress and, and regret that in, in so many different ways. But it, 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 it got pretty out of control. My roommate was worried for me and, um, and as he should be. One night that I was out, or you, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that one thing that comes up for me about that is from your perspective, you're taking advantage of the system, which I, I understand why, why you say that. What I also see is that you truly had a fatal progressive illness and a major anxiety disorder and probably weren't bringing your A game to your job anyway. And, and so going out on disability, you may have thought it was a scam, but it was in some ways it was kind of an accurate depiction of what was going on. It was. Do you know, at that point, I wish my HR department would have said, do you have another problem? Do you want to talk about? Right. Um, and I, I guess they just didn't see that or I fooled them enough um, right. uh, that, uh, yeah, nobody really paid attention. Um, yeah. my, job, my job suffered heavily. I never made my stats. And it was, it was very bad. It was very bad. Yeah. So you started to, so from that point on, you, you ended up getting a DUI. Is that right? That was. God, I uh, sound like a prosecutor. Is that? <laughs> read, read from line three. Is that correct? Is that right? Yes. Uh, that was in 2012. But I want to, I want to touch on a couple of things before that from when I was 27. Uh, I think I got my DWI when I was 29. Um, so a couple years there I, I want to talk about, because I, I think it's kind of funny, is in my addiction after Brian, I, I met this guy named Jamie uh, Rures. And I, I say his full name because he's unfortunately now passed away. But he introduced me. I, I, I immediately fell in love with him at the bar, drinking, of course. And um, Is there another way to fall in love? There is I, no other way. Oh, I obviously. Yeah. I don't know either. So he, I was like, well... You know, I can't go back to my place, but let's go back to your place. He's like, oh, I can't. And I was like, why? He was like, he wouldn't explain. <laughs> well, I got him drunk enough to where I can convince, I convinced him to do that. So uh, the state fair was right next door to the bar. Well, he took me back to the state fair and he was like, well, this is my trailer. And I'm like, what do you mean? He was like, well, I travel around the state fairs and we have a booth and, you know, we take p- pictures of people in front of green screens and we put every, anything behind them and we put them on license plates and shirts and stuff like that. And we charge people for that. And I was like, that sounds great. How do I become that? <laughs> I want to be a carny. Oh, it's too good. Yeah. So I became a carny. <laughs> <laughs> did you move in with into, into this trailer? We, I did. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was a big trailer. There was enough room for the owners <laughs> up front. We had sort of the middle master suite, and then we had two, four bunk beds in, in the back of the trailer. It was a custom-made trailer. 
And so we... I want to be a carny. Yeah. (laughs) You would think that. (laughs) When we were on the road, um, and right before I went on the road with him, I was supposed to go to Mississippi, but my mom got the swine flu and I got a call from my doctor. How they tracked me down to a Jiffy Lube is beyond me. But they said, do you have a John? Is there a John here? And I said, yeah, I'm John. He's like, do you have a call? And I'm like, who the hell's calling me at a Jiffy Lube? Well, I had to call. That would freak me out. Yeah. They were like, hey, uh, this is, uh, um, you know, I'm calling on behalf of your mom. I'm I'm her preacher. And I'm like, how did you find me? They were like. (laughs) You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, let's. I know that my mom's sick, but can we get back to like how you found me? Yeah. Like, (laughs) is there a tracker in my car? I'm not aware of that my parents put when I left. real freaked out. So she told me, they told me that she had swine flu and she wasn't going to make it. So I told the Carney people that I had to leave for a month and we were, uh, so I drove down to Texas thinking that my mom was going to die. So I wrote a eulogy and I picked the songs out that I was going to play at her funeral. And when I got there, she was in something called a roto bed, uh, which, and she was in a coma. They had to put her in a coma because her lungs were filled with fluid. She couldn't breathe anymore. And a roto bed Imagine it if you were lying down in a padded almost cell that rotated right and left every 30 seconds to keep the, f- the fluid moving in your lungs and to get the fluid out. Um, so I didn't recognize her when I got there. But when I was back in my hometown, you know, I was trying to support my dad, but it was my hometown. I had friends to visit. I had, you know, parties right. to go to and yeah. I, I wasn't there for them. Thankfully, she pulled through and I left and to go on tour to be a carny. Uh, in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and finally wow. down to Miami for six months and then to West Palm Beach uh, to where um, they let me, why they let me do this, but they let me open a retail store to do this, um, to give, to give the alcoholic keys to a retail store and see what happens. Yeah, so fun experiment. Yeah. Uh, drank every day before work, uh, used every night afterwards. Uh, woke up to the exact same thing for seven or eight months till I couldn't stand it anymore. And I called my parents and I said, I'm done. How do I get home? And um, moved back uh, to Austin where my substance abuse continued and got worse. Somehow I got some incredible jobs. I know you have all these jobs that you're getting. I'm so impressed. (laughs) Yeah. I was not employable. I worked at Dell. I worked at Southwest Airlines. I worked at... Startup companies. I was managers. I was directors. I don't know if that's a, a statement about you or them. I don't know. Who would <laughs> hire an alcoholic as your director? That's not a great idea. That's pretty. It's it's. Impre- I mean, do you have Carney on your resume? No. <laughs> However, there was one day at my current job uh, that I was talking with my director, and we were at oh, happy no. hour, and they were. They were like three or four drinks in and and we were going around. They were like, let's tell the most embarrassing thing that we've ever done or embarrassing job that we've ever had. And I'm like, oh, boy, shit. So (laughs) you're like, well, this is easy. (laughs) Yeah. And I said, y'all guess, just start guessing. And they named out a whole bunch of things. And I said, no, no. And they were like, tell us, tell us. And I'm like, I was a carny. And they were like. You traveled with the circus? And I was like, no, that's different. Circus is a circus. You travel with the carny. It's a state fair. <laughs> I have some respect. Yeah, seriously. Excuse me. Yeah. So they had a good laugh and uh, I'm now known as the carny guy. But so... You earned uh, it. 
I, I earned it. I earned every you penny earned of that. that. Every uh, penny of ev- that. Every, every penny, every title. It was a yeah. hard life. You know, you had to <laughs> wake up at seven in the morning, go to your booth, open, close at 10, 11 o'clock at night, drink for the next four hours, get two hours of sleep and do it all over again. Oh my again. gosh. That's yeah. so stressful. Yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone riding any rides at any carnival ever. That's what I always say. And my husband, thank you. Okay, now I have, I always say, I'm like, that stuff is not safe. I don't care what anybody says. That stuff's not safe. Yeah, I got to go under some of those rides and fix them and paint them. And you don't know what's under there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I said. It was like, this is, this, this ain't no OSHA tested yeah. uh, ride. Yeah. This is like reassembled by someone with, who's three sheets to the wind. But anyway, I'm glad. Yeah. yeah so yeah. good news is we've now disseminated that information. Yes. So Austin, I'm back in Austin. I'm back in my hometown. <laughs> I'm living with my parents. I'm still drinking and not coming home at night. And it got to the point where I was working at Home Depot, dating this one guy. And one night we were sitting around drinking and smoking. And he looks at me while we were using substances and going, you know, you would do with some good rehab. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? We're, we're, <laughs> what? And he's like, I'm so confused. Please tell me more uh, while we <laughs> yes. have while we while we have this, you know, thing of whiskey sitting in front of us. And so he was like, well, you just seem to be going off the rails. And I'm like, sure. So I thought about it that night, woke up, and uh, I was at my, I went to my parents' house and I texted my parents and I said, Hey mom, when you get home, we have to talk about something. She's like, and, not again. <laughs> yeah. She was like, what now? Um, and no one was home. Uh, I sat my mom down on the couch and I said, mom, I said, I think, I think I need to go to rehab. And she was like, Oh, thank God. Because they actually would put around little AA pamphlets in the bat, my bathroom and on the counter and in my lunch. And like, and I would, I would look at them and I'm like, I don't meet any of these criteria. I'm not an alcoholic. What are you talking about? Total denial. I've never done any of these things. So the irony that like, mom, I'm gay. And then mom, I'm like, mom, I'm attracted to the, you know, same sex. Mom, I'm attracted to the same sex. Freak out, freak out. Mom, I'm an alcoholic. Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, mom, I have a fatal progressive <laughs> disease. Can you help me? Woo. Yeah. All right. Now we're, yeah. now we're working with something. I know. <laughs> she was happy. So that was probably on a Monday. I stayed at their house all week. I didn't leave. I detoxed on my own. And Ooh, brutal. Um, I got to pick where I wanted to go to treatment. And I didn't have insurance at the time, so my parents um, had to take out a loan uh, and pay for it. And um, at that point, I, I didn't realize how expensive treatment was. Oh, yes. And Where'd you go? So I'm, I'm not going to say the name of the treatment center because... What city? Um, uh, but it was in Wimberley, Texas, okay. uh, which was about an hour outside of Austin. And okay. it wasn't a fancy one. Uh, I could have chose the fancy one, but I wanted to really get sober. I wanted to get help. And so... That Friday, I ended up at the treatment center uh, one day at detox, and I was there for 31, 31 days. And I was so, you know, when I talked to the doctors and got a lot of test results back, um, they said I was, I, I had irre- irreparably damaged my body. And uh, when they weighed me, um, I, I'm 5'10", 5'11". When they weighed me in, I was 123 pounds. 
Oh my god! Um, so very malnutritious, uh, nutritious, nutrition, malnourished, yeah. malnourished. There we go. And it 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 was, you know, they put me on a lot of different medications, anxiety medications, sleeping medications, all that good jazz. And um, it was it was a co-ed rehab facility, so guys on one side, girls on the other. When I came out to some of the guys uh, that I was gay, there were four or five of them that uh, bullied me through rehab. So I was actually bullied in rehab. Oh my gosh. Uh, and uh, the owner found out about it, came to the rehab, and on family day while everybody was sitting around, made them get up and apologize for that. But I had to I had to ride in the women's van uh, because it was it was bad. It got really bad. It was the first time I've ever been bullied for being gay, uh, and in rehab no less. Lovely. Yeah. So it was it was tough. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor the Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, LionRock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800-258-6550. Thank you. When you got there and you're 123 pounds and they're like, you have irreparably damaged your, your, your health, were you surprised or were you like, did you have, was it one of those things where there was some body dysmorphia like I have, or was it, um, were you like, yeah, I, I, I figured, I figured I was sick or, you know, I figured I hadn't eaten enough or whatever. I knew something was going on. Uh, I just couldn't put my, my finger on it. Um, and so when they told me it was uh, a shock and I, I just didn't know how bad it was, but, and, and I cried for about 10 minutes and then I realized I'm in rehab. I need to focus on my recovery and getting sober mm-hmm. and I'll deal with, you know, getting better from a more physically standpoint later. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting that you separated the two, you know, the physical, mental and physical. By that time, I had been sober for, well, including detox uh, in the first week and a half that I had been in rehab for two and a half weeks. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I could understand everything that okay. was going on around me. <laughs> you were speaking English again. I was speaking English, right? And, you know, I wasn't speaking to the tigers and the other stuff that I was seeing. Right. So uh, oh, shadow people. So it, it all made sense. And I, I could comprehend it and separate the two. Yeah. yeah. How did you get well while being bullied in rehab? How did, how or what did you, how did you progress in that environment? After the bullying, that was about the second week that that took place. So I had another couple of weeks that I was able to really focus on my recovery, uh, work with my counselor and follow every direction that they ever gave me, even if, even though if I didn't like it, right? Like right. who, who makes their bed every day when they get up in the morning? I mean, <laughs> that was a thing that we had to do. And, you know, I never realized until after I got out of treatment, why they did that, that you had to wash the vans every Saturday, that you had to clean, uh, you know, every other day. I was like, why are we doing this? We need to be talking about sobriety and stuff. Right. Um, but it was about, you know, 
creating those routines that you lost while you were using. And if I didn't have that and I got out, you know, I wouldn't know what to do. Right. So it made sense. And I just had to buckle down and focus on it. Yeah. Yeah. It it is really hard when you're getting sober and they're telling, you know, so many things you're told to do that seem completely unrelated. I still have that, you know, or your sponsor or, or you know, ther- like it's completely unrelated to the topic at hand, but, but it does it, it, there's something about taking those actions that and following direction. And, you know, someone told me messy bed, messy head. Yes. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, there's some truth to that oh, in learning how to take direction. It is a total truth. You know, my current boyfriend, um, when he stays over, uh, by the time I'm out of the shower, my bed's made. And I'm like, you're a keeper. I like you. <laughs> he was Hospital like, little corners. Yeah. He, I did everything. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. And I'm like, why do you do that? He was like, because I noticed you did it one morning when I stayed over. So I know you like it that way. And I'm like, you're a keeper. I like you. Oh yeah. That's nice. God. Yeah. Talk to yeah. my husband. <laughs> <laughs> we can connect them on the phone. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. You talked a little bit, I, I, you, you've experienced some domestic violence, in your relationships, how has that, what work did you do or was that just self-esteem work in order to have a different experience in relationships and recovery? Yeah. Um, it's been a long road. So, you know, when I, um, right before I left treatment, my counselor said, John, within a year, you're going to relapse. And I'm like, thanks. Is that a pep talk? Yeah. Like, uh, what? Like, is this encouragement? Is this like a goal that I should like, you know, go in a year, come back and go, ha ha, I didn't relapse. Um, Right. And so he said, you know, you're going to relapse within a year and it's going to be because of two things. It's going to be because of finance or romance. Yeah. And so I was like, get out of here. You're lying. Yeah. Finance and romance. Uh, <laughs> Turns uh, out he was completely accurate within yeah. within six months after rehab. Yeah, and uh, but you know I, I did a lot of work with my counselor in rehab about you know what happened um, and how I felt about you know being raped and and how that played out in my life, how not having a dad as a child um, contributed to my alcoholism, and without going through those first crucial steps in in treatment, I don't think that um, I would have gotten over it. And I really didn't until I got sober in 2013, until I truly started working my steps like I was supposed to. You know, I I worked some steps before. I tried it three or four times. didn't work for me. My four steps were crap. And I didn't put everything out there like like I was supposed to. And because of that, I relapsed a couple of times. Yeah. 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 You yeah. were lucky that you made it back to do that. Not everybody is so lucky. I was lucky to be alive. Um, yeah. There were a lot of my litter mates that, uh, and lit- litter mates uh, to the public is people that I got sober with that died because they went yeah. out and drank. Um, yep. Or, that one more time. That one more time. Uh, yep. And I see it every year. Um, it's so, it's so scary. Yeah. I've had close roommates that have, uh, committed suicide. Um, I had three in one year, um, that happened Gosh. with like weeks apart. And, um, that's why I started painting, but, or one of the reasons, but yeah, it, it took a lot of work, but yeah. So you mentioned the DWI, uh, a little bit. Oh, we're bringing it back. We're bringing we're, it back. We're, we're, I want to circle back to that. Okay. Um, in 2012, 
uh, a year before I got sober, uh, I got a DWI. And I had driven and drove many times before, um, thought I was great. Um, <laughs> what is that? Everybody thinks they're a great drunk driver. It's, I know. It's like self-esteem, liquid self-esteem. I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I drive better <laughs> drunk. Yeah, exactly. Do you? Do you really? Do you really? Where did you come up with that statistic? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, got a DWI um, and possession, fel- felony possession of cocaine. Ooh. Um, Wait, felony possession? How? That's got to be bags for other people? Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. You're good. You know your stuff. Are you sure you're not a lawyer? Am I on <laughs> I the right podcast? Charges. Uh, this is like Anyone a judge looking court. to hire me for, <laughs> <laughs> for for drug jeopardy? You could be a, uh, uh, a, a what is it? A, a court bailiff. Um, you'd be <laughs> great. Court reporter. Court reporter. You know this stuff. Felony. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was Labor Day weekend. Um, I think it was Labor Day weekend. And in Austin, they love to do no refusals uh, for every holiday. So I could not refuse to either give a blood uh, thing or to... Um, <laughs> a to holiday blow. no refusal? Is that, a, is that constitutional? A yeah. How is get, that a thing? Because they have court orders ready to go. Okay. Interesting. To okay. do that. So even if you say no, they're like, ah, we're going to do it anyway. What? Yeah. Good old Travis County. Gotta love it. Yeah, that, that feels... Anyway, so, yeah. okay, so you were so, in doo-doo. Yeah, I was in doo-doo, was in jail for three days, got out, and my parents left me in jail for a couple of days, as they should. I have no, you know, I guess, uh, ill will toward, yeah. towards that. Um, yeah. if, if I had kids, I'd do the same thing. And when I went back to the house that I was living in, uh, Mark... Uh, had uh, changed the locks. Um, he was there to open the door and said, sorry, you've got to move out. And he's this big guy. He probably stands like 6'3", bald, beard, like, but was always the nicest guy. Like he gave the biggest bear hugs. He was just, she was sweet. And I understood exactly what was happening. Yeah. And got myself out, uh, which I didn't have much at the time. Uh, it, it, I had maybe four bags of clothes, some shirts and pillows and blankets. And after I got all this stuff out of my uh, in my car, I went back and Mark and I had a conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I said, "Mark, will you be my sponsor?" So, <laughs> when I tell my story to people, they're like, "So he kicked you out of the house, and then you asked him to be your sponsor." Yeah. What bold move on your part? It was a bold move. But I know you want to live with me, but will you mentor me? Yeah. Great idea. <laughs> I didn't have anywhere to go. And I moved my kid with my parents. My parents had very strict rules. Don't drink and come home at uh, 11 o'clock. That's your curfew. Within a week, I broke that. They gave me one more chance. Within three days of that, I broke that. And they said, you got to move. I said, okay. I put everything in my car. And I didn't have anywhere to go for a couple of days. I lived out of my car. And uh, I was homeless and at the bottom of my bottom. So I thought. My friend Rob, uh, which we call Nana in our AA group, he takes people in and gets them sober and gets them on track. And he, I called him, I had a conversation with them and he said, you're more than welcome to move in. I've got a bed for you. Great. Moved in, drank for six months while I was in his house. And he knew I was drinking. As long as I was paying the rent and I came home every night, he was okay with that uh, because he knew I was safe. Mm. Okay. And um, at that point I started dating the guy um, by the name of Angel 
that I that that was one of the reasons why I was kicked out of my mom's house. I that last time that I drank, I actually went out with him, and even though I told him I wasn't dateable, he was like, "Let's see." And uh, <laughs> sounds like a challenge. To yeah, me. exactly. And I'm like, I guess he took it up as a challenge. Yeah. Well, after about I don't know six seven months of dating me. Um, he knew I had a problem and he tried to control it. It took him six months to figure that out? Apparently. Um, not the sharpest knife in the knife block. No, but he was sweet and I appreciated that. I appreciated him trying. On March 20th, no, March 19th, it was a Thursday, I went out and he was in another city uh, about 45 minutes away. Rob was gone. Uh, he was uh, on vacation, so I was like, Rob was hmm. the person you were living with or your yeah. sponsor? No, I was living with. So I was like, oh, he's gone. My you know, my boyfriend's in another city. I'm going to go out. It's a Thursday night, baby. So I went out, and I had fun, and I was using, and I went to an after party, and I was doing my normal thing of you know, looking online for a hookup at 4 in the morning at this after, after, at this after hours party. Well, and sending emails through Craigslist. And at that point, I forgot that my boyfriend had my tablet. And every time that I sent an email, it dinged. And so I got a text message from him and he said, are you awake? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what are you doing awake? Are you out? And I said, no, I just couldn't sleep. I'm at home. He's like, oh, okay. And I stopped texting him and I stopped emailing. And I was like, you know, it's four in the morning. I got to work at eight. I should probably go home. By the time I got home, I parked I shut off my engine. I got a knock on my window and he was at my window and he was like, where were you? Uh, we had a big fight and I said, you know what? I got to get some sleep. I got to work. In the morning, I woke up. I told my work, hey, I got to work from home. I'm not feeling well. Uh, by this time, they kind of already knew that I was an alcoholic and they were like, no, you need to come in. It's mandatory. And I said, no, I can't. And they were like, <laughs> no, you need to come in. I said, no, I'm not going to. And they were like, okay, well, we have a meeting set up on Monday. I said, shit. So, so that Friday night, after I got off of work, uh, Angel was still there, and I was taking a nap on the couch because I was obviously very tired from working all day and staying out all night. He grabs my phone. Uh, he knew my code. He logged into my bank statements on my phone, um, saw everything that I had been doing for months, logged into my emails, logged into my GPS tracking, woke me up by throwing a pillow at me, started screaming at me, and we had a fight. Uh, that fight escalated uh, to shouting in the living room for about an hour, shouting in the front for about an hour. And I um, decided to go out on the back porch. I opened the door. Uh, I slammed it behind me, even though I knew he was coming. He opened the door. He pushed me down the steps. I was about four steps, and I landed on uh, the deck pretty hard. I got up. I pushed him back, and um, he was above me. He grabbed me by the neck, uh, body slammed me back to the porch, and continued to choke me and s- screaming that he didn't know what to do with me, that he loved me, that he couldn't take this anymore. He was crying. And I think through his rage and his crying, he didn't realize that he was choking me to the point where it was crushing my throat to where I couldn't breathe Um, until he kind of came out of the trance, let go, went back, left me on the porch, went back into the house, locked locked the house to where I couldn't get in and told everybody in the house that I was using it was very traumatic. Um, it took me a while to regain to where I could breathe. And I went into the room that I was staying in. I fell asleep. 
The next morning I went to my parents and I stayed in, in a spare bedroom for two days and I didn't come out. And in that time, I thought, what am I doing with my life? What just happened? Um, I was assaulted again. Um, this seems to be a common theme. And I recapped the last year and a half of my life. And that is where the point, that was my tipping point. Not the DWI, not being me, me being raped before, not losing jobs, not having panic attacks, anxiety attacks. It was the fact that someone else, and I'm going to say this, and this is going to sound weird, that someone else, and I, I'm going to say cared enough for me that they were crying out to me, that they, even though he was choking me, he was crying out that I can't take this anymore and I don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, it was wrong for him to choke me. I will say that. And he and I have come to terms um, and, and said our piece about that. But after that weekend, I called my sponsor and I said, I'm ready. And Rob got, got back into town because I was banned from the house at that at that point in time. And I said, I'm, I'm ready to get sober. And there were rules put into place. I had to go so many, so many nights to, to rehab and started working my steps. And I worked the steps like I, I had never worked them before. I was the embodiment of what a, an, a person in, in AA should do um, and, and what steps that they should take. By the book, by the big book, didn't, didn't miss anything. And it took me about four months to write my fourth step. This is the fun part. After I was done writing my four step, which was pretty much an entire notebook, you know, notebook, yep. right? Yep, um, same. <laughs> my sponsor said, "Okay, well, I, I got to go out of town for a week," and I'm like, "No, oh, done. I've got to read it like tomorrow to somebody." He was like, "Well, choose somebody that you trust that you're in a spiritual relationship with." And um, I was like, "Well, who am I in a spiritual relationship with?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm in a spiritual relationship with my dad because we've been going to church." I found a church that I liked. They started going, and he was my spiritual running partner. So I called my dad, and I said, hey, um, I'm in the place uh, in my recovery that I have all my four-step written, and uh, I just need to read it to somebody. Would, could, could you just listen to me for like a couple hours? And he was like, sure. And he was like, wait, what's involved with that? And I said, well, I have to read you everything um, of everything that I did that, was, that, I, that I had <laughs> done wrong who I needed to make amends to, all my sexual things that I messed up. <laughs> and he was like, oh, okay. That was half the binder. And... Oh, God. Did you read your fourth step to your dad? I did. Oh, my. Uh, I got to his, his house when the, when the sun was rising. They live out in the country, so it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. Got him coffee. It took me about two hours to read it to him. And, it, and I read a lot. Um, we cried. He was shocked a lot. But my dad is the one that knows everything about me. Stuff There's stuff that I told him that my mother will never, ever know, uh, that she doesn't ever need to know. And my dad and I kind of made that pack. And after I read it to him, we said a prayer. I called my sponsor, and there was a rock in the backyard that I was able to get cell service, and I cried on the rock. I went to the bathroom. I cried while I peed. I cried pretty much for the next hour mm-hmm. because it was such a burden that left it. And I worked the rest of the steps from there. I made amends. I traveled to other states. Everybody that I made amends to understood what I went through um, yeah. after, after I left, um, including Brian. And I owed Brian quite a bit of money from all the credit card stuff that I wrecked up. And he's like, don't worry about it. I'm glad you're well. And I had so many people do that. And I cried. <laughs> and I cried. And getting sober 
I, I got asked to join the board of directors for a recovery organization. We started the first recovery in the park five years ago. It's still going on. This is the fifth or sixth anniversary. And it's one, it's crazy to see that growing, right? Yeah. Um, and it, my sponsor said, now that you're sober, doors are going to open up. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like if you were at the bottom of the river and you were holding rocks and you suddenly let go, you were, you were, you know, you went straight to the top and the river was a rapid and you're, you're now going to go down that rapid and it's going to be bumpy for a while, but eventually it's going to smooth out into a very nice river and it's going to be smooth. Being sober is the, probably the most wonderful thing that's ever happened in my life. I have gotten jobs to where I've been able to, uh, to talk to, to talk to moms and talk them off the ledge of, of doing something stupid because their, their kid was sick and, and is using and they didn't know how to handle. I had one mom call me one time that she was so mad that she wished her son would just die. And a lot of times I would sit on the floor of my office talking to moms for hours and started, you know, groups with parents that they could join and help them understand what was going through, what, what was going through. And it was kind of a peer, peer group for them. Yeah. Um, I became a peer recovery coach, uh, the, the second one in the state of Texas that actually passed the exam and things just kept on getting better and better and better. And I'm not saying that being in sobriety is the easiest thing in the world because it's not, you know, I've been married, I've got divorced. Right. And that's when I started painting, uh, when I moved out because I didn't know of anything else to do. And so, you know, through painting, I was, I'm able to express myself in ways that I never thought possible. And I, I just, I can't explain what, what recovery means to me, um, because there's so many words. My biggest thing in recovery that, that I do is I give back. And that's probably the, the moral of my entire story. And there's a quote uh, by an, an, an anonymous person about volunteering. And it says, volunteering is the ultimate exercise in democracy. You vote in elections once a year, but when you volunteer, you vote every day about the kind of community you want to live in. And that resonated with me from the time that I got sober to today. Andy Andrews is a great, a great another speaker that, that helped me along about talking about what, what I want to do in my life, how do I want to take it, and how do I want to live my sobriety. He's not a sobriety speaker. He's a spiritual speaker, but he has some books that blow me away in ways that I, I can't even imagine. To this day, God, I do so much. Um, I don't sleep. I uh, am a crew chief for Love, Hope, Strength. Uh, we tour the nation, signing people up to get on the National Bone Marrow Registry list. Um, I think I've, wow. I'm pretty much, I've surpassed 5,000 people. Um, wow. For every thousand people that we sign up, we save about two or three people's lives. I'm on the, um, the planning council for the HIV and AIDS uh, planning council for the city of Austin. Uh, that's directly under the mayor. And, and we have about a $5 million budget that we help uh, for, uh, for different service organizations. I do, God, I do so much. There, I own three businesses, my art business and insurance business and a vitamin business on top of my regular job. And uh, I also volunteer for the, the Hill Country Ride for AIDS. Um, it's every year. It takes a year of plan. I feed 600 people breakfast, lunch, and dinner on ride day. But you know what? We raised 100. No, we raised, what did, what did we raise so far? Last year, we raised almost $700,000. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So I give, I, I don't give back in the recovery community as much anymore because I was burnt out by working in a recovery yeah. organization, yeah, I but I give, I give back in, in so many different ways. And that's something I've talked about. I, re- I love that you bring that up is that, um, I got 
I've been burnt out before in um, on recovery, giving back, like giving back in recovery, talking about recovery. You know, you're in it for long enough. If you do it all day long, it it does it does wear on you. And one thing that I tell people who feel you know who are experiencing that, especially people who work in recovery, is that your giving back and your volunteer work can look like anything. You can go volunteer at an animal shelter and snuggle animals that need help. You know, whatever it is as long as it's helping someone outside of yourself, because I do think that there is something to be said about when your nine to five job is working in recovery, substance abuse recovery, that sometimes the last thing you want to do is talk about that when you get off work and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. It was very hard to work in that field and then go to the meeting and go, yeah, I just sat through this for eight hours. I'm going to leave. And I knew if I didn't leave that company that I, w- I would stop going to AA meetings, and that's what I was afraid of. So I switched companies, and now I'm a, um, a client support operations manager, which is great. I love doing it. Super cool. Super cool. And I love that you found your tribe and that you found what works for you. And I think that's such an important message that it doesn't have to look one way or another. It doesn't have to be always giving back in program or always giving, you know, it, like it's about finding what makes your heart sing. And and that's that's just the beauty of sobriety is that it's in the seeking that you find where you need to be and what you were missing all yes, along. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, and that's, Something I talk about a lot in AA and I and to, to my sponsor or sponsees is, you know, they're like, Well, am I supposed to be working at the coffee bar? Am I supposed to be sponsoring? And I'm like, You don't have to if you don't want to. You know, I probably haven't had a sponsee for two years and I'm okay with that because I help moms out. One of my best friends, uh, her son is went through detox just recently and is going um, in residential treatment and I'm helping her create a plan to where when he exits, what are we going to do with him? I have a coworker. I won't, I won't name her, but I'm helping her through a transition because her son, but she wears glasses and has red hair. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so it's, wait, how did you know? (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm helping her out and I'm connecting them to and connecting them where they need to be to make sure that they're taking right. care of each other in this whole transition. So right. You're being of service. You're being of service. Um, in the big book doesn't say where you have to be of service. It just says how to be of service. Right. If there's somebody out there who has your experience of the experience of, you know, feeling like they couldn't be who they are, maybe, maybe it is, maybe they, they are trying to come out. Maybe that's a contentious issue in their family and they're using alcohol to help anesthetize the feelings around that. What is something, what is the advice you wish you had had early on when, when your alcoholism and was starting to brew? No pun intended. Yeah, that was good. I didn't keep, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't even I, mean I, Yeah, that was brew. good. Yeah, that was to, good. To, yeah. Touche. Yeah. Thank um, you. Be who you feel like you're meant to be. Don't be scared. God loves you. You have a higher power that is always going to be on your side, no matter what it, what anybody else says. If you lose family over it, that's okay. You're going to sprout your wings and become somebody that you never dreamed possible and keep, keep plowing forward. I love it. That's yeah. awesome. 
Thank you so much, Jonathan. We're really grateful to have you here and have you share your story. And I know that you've helped a lot of people and you're going to help a lot of people through this. Absolutely. I am going to keep on fighting the good fight and helping whoever I can. And thank you so much for letting me on your 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 podcast. I am truly overwhelmed with honor and, and humbleness and gratitude. Awesome. Thank you so much. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you.